2: When
3: I was in
0: when I was a dedicated to the
3: cause of, of Lucifer, I was, at that point, a the generation of generation. I was laying there, the practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, guys, Morning, just you know what they did to us so, that's when i fled that
4: home but no they well, they, they would they, me. they would they pictures in my head if they wanted they
2: wanted to take me
3: Which measures magnetic field 7.5 got an Ultrasound machine It's right there, right there. It's hard Physical evidence Not illusionary
1: Start Luke
5: Welcome to Conspira Normal This is your co-host
1: I've managed to make an appearance. <laughs> My God, I mean it is. I mean we we are blessed with you with your appearance because uh, you know we haven't done a show in about uh, three weeks. But uh, you we you haven't been with us in almost two. It's almost been two months, no, basically. Serious. Yeah, just about.
5: Well, I'm I'm happy
1: to be here. Yeah, we're happy you're here, brother. Absolutely, Rob's giving me new headphone your headphones here, so. <laughs> He's a All right, new gear feeling much plus, better now five, yeah. <laughs> <fine>. stereo <laughs> Well it has been about three weeks since we did a show and actually it's been God it's been almost a month since we did a show in this studio because the last show that we did uh, where I had Scotty sit sit in and we had Jeanette uh, Latulip talking about the UFO Bigfoot connection uh, that one was at my house. So because Rob here was gone, uh, Chris Gustafsson ab- abducted him for a, uh, for a week and a half. Hey, tell everybody about that, like what you were doing with Chris Kristofferson. It's like, kind of cool.
6: <laughs> well, I, I work for a rental company. We have warehouses full of instruments. So basically, I, I was in charge of all the guitar amps and uh, drums and keyboards. And they rehearsed for a couple days. And then they did a big, big show at the uh, Bridgestone Arena. So I just hung out on the side of the stage hoping nothing broke during the show because then I'd have to run out and pretend I knew how to fix it. And,
1: and yeah, you got to meet some famous people too. Yeah, it was hanging out really neat.
6: Hanging out Don Was from uh, Was Not Was mm-hmm. and also a huge producer. Um, yeah, the band was amazing. There was uh, pretty much every every country music star I'd ever want to see was there. You know, from oh Willie Nelson to um, Reba McIntyre and... Alison kraus it was a pretty amazing show
1: i guess that's the perks of living and working in nashville
6: yeah about one out of every 100 shows you have to work is pretty cool
1: yeah absolutely i was still kind of mad with chris christopherson overtaking that <laughs> from me, but you know it, it went to a good cause i suppose like it was just like what his 80th birthday party or something like that
6: um i don't i don't know if it was his, he does turn 80 this year but i think yeah. it was just a it was like a tribute to his life and music okay
1: yeah, and over here we have uh, someone else that's not been here in a while. That's Mister Zach Carmichael. The dark Say Lord hello. <laughs> I mean, we, we, are you are you okay with me using your last name? Because this this guy right here is not okay with it. Do okay. you want like a do you want a like you, a cool you can last use name? My last
7: name, but yeah. <laughs> call,
5: call him Zip Zachary
7: or something. Because dark what Kylo Ren stuff. He's been. Darth. He Darth, cool as hell.
1: <laughs> oh, we already
7: got Skyrider
1: here, so you might as well. That, like, that's a
5: Darth arch Nemesis. Darth, badass. Yeah, that's
7: there we go.
5: Zach's uh, screen Star name, Wars Episode
7: 8, alias. coming <laughs> <in> December 2017.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that, Zach. <laughs>
7: we get to plug Sorry, Disney. We get to, we
1: get to plug uh, Disney on this show sometimes. Uh, all right. Well, on the line, guys, we graduate. have a return guest uh Mr. Stephen Ogden from Germany, and he's gonna fill us in on what's going on over there. We like to think of him as our European correspondent and if you've not been if you've been in a cave there's the three weeks that we've been gone, a lot has happened uh mostly the terrorist attacks on in Belgium on march twenty second And then also kind of like the counter uh, uh, lash against that with the uh, protests that have been going on over there. Steven, how you doing, man?
8: Hey, yeah. Good. Yourself?
1: Great. Great. It's good to be back at it after a nice little well-needed break. Uh, So as usual, things are getting kind of crazy over in Europe. So what's the what's the latest going on over there?
8: Well, the latest is they still haven't caught the guy in the hat, they're calling him. As, yeah, the, as we, yeah, the guy at the airport in the white hat, they still haven't caught him. They thought they had, and they were all like, oh, we caught him, but no, they didn't. So that guy is still on the loose.
1: Yeah, that. What's, um. What have people been saying over there about that whole situation in Belgium? I I mean, ISIS took responsibility for the attacks. But what are some of the other things that you're that you're hearing that you might be hearing about it that we would not be hearing over here in the United States, which seems to be kind of as usual? We don't get the full picture over here.
8: Yeah. Well, the biggest story about Belgium would be the nuclear power plants that are going on in Belgium because they've got a lot. Yeah. And one nuclear power plant was actually evacuated as the attacks were happening, right? And because they said they had a threat to the nuclear power plant. And funnily enough, if they blow up that plant, I'm dead in five hours. So, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, because you're, the, you're extremely yeah. close to that area.
8: In Europe, everything is close. You can drive from Spain to... Russia in a day if you drive for 24 hours, so it's not hard. Right. So, like Paris,
1: you said was about maybe four hours for you, I yeah, believe. Belgium. Brussels yeah. would be what, maybe like two hours, hours. half an hour hours. and a half?
8: Three hours. Oh,
1: so it's a longer distance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just crazy also the protests that have been going on in Belgium. Cause it's almost like, I think it was like a few days later over the, that weekend there were mega protests going on in Belgium and a lot of the were like right-wing groups. What have yes. you heard about that?
8: Oh, well there's always right, right-wing groups going on about at the moment, you know, it's not hard for them to get, um, to get the stuff to, you know, expand on. And, uh, that's just how it is. There's there's always marches every day. In in the whole of Europe, it's just not in the news that much. Most of it's over like um the social media platforms, you know, and Facebook mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And until you read about it and you can see the videos, it's just not in the in the big news.
1: So were these protests were these more of a response to the riot or have th- or a response to the bombings, or were these more Uh, just things that have been going on every day, they just took on a different meaning with the Brussels bombings.
8: Well, they've been going on in a small, and let's say smaller, right? And as the attacks happened, that group obviously then said, right, we were right along, let's get on the streets. And then they had like a 300% inflation on the numbers. And that's why that happened.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, how violent did those, did those protests get?
8: well the the real violence only happened when the actual left came, and then uh, the police w- went right in the middle of them, and yeah that's when you know: <laughs> right, that's so when it always happens.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you get two group, different groups fighting each other out there and that's that's what happens.
8: It's Yeah, it always happens. Either you have the Muslims in the Muslim areas going after the right wingers or you have the right going after the left or the other way around and the liberals are on the side with rainbow flags just having to cheer and <laughs> yeah. Now,
1: I have heard that there is an area in Brussels that is... Yeah. Pretty much off, off limits. limits to yeah. to to westerners or to journalists. Like there were some journalists that tried to go there a few months ago, and they got pretty much kicked out, beat up, and kicked out. Stuff thrown at them, uh, and you know Trump over here has said that apparently mentioned this a few months ago as well. And yep. then tweeted out something like I told you, so that this would happen in Brussels And Brussels was probably like the worst part of the worst part of Europe, which kind of surprises me from some of the other things that we've talked about. I mean, I would yep. think Paris would actually probably be the worst uh, uh, as far as yeah. all this that's going on. But uh, how, how true is all that that we're hearing about these no go areas in in these cities like Brussels and Paris.
8: Yeah, well, let's get down to Trump business then again. <laughs> uh, Trump business, uh, Trump actually said, right, he was in Brussels years ago and he said it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful in, yeah. in Brussels. The architecture, the EU being there, everyone working together. And right. now he says it's a pit of doom. And the area you're speaking of is Molenbeek. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Molenbeek... Um, I've actually seen a live stream of journalists in a uh, out of the US from uh, a station you might know and a person who you might know, Alex Jones, right? Yeah, yeah. He sent them over there after the attacks in Paris. They then went north to Belgium to have a look at Molenbeek. And you can actually see people, like, giving them the middle finger, there's cars driving after them. And it's not like, you know, Alex Jones, conspiracy theorists. You can see the people that are walking after them and trying to get them out of the area. And they had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's that kind of stuff. And it's, it's the thing is with Belgium, they've always been so liberal. And basically, they said, you know what, if the problem is that site, it's out of mind. And they let all these groups into Molenbeek, into that area, and just said, you know what, we don't care. Just do your thing there. The press won't do anything about you, or the police won't do anything about you. They can't anyway, because the people that are better armed than the police. You can buy it. I read a report that you can buy an AK for 000, um, a thousand dollars about in, in Brussels and for, uh, and for Europe, that's a good price. I mean, uh, an AK in Germany will do you about four grand.
1: <laughs> I <laughs>
5: mean, yeah, that's crazy. They're like $300 here.
8: Yeah, well, it's America. Everyone has AKs at (laughs) home. I I bet you've got AK somewhere. Uh, Maybe.
1: Luke's (laughs) got got a picture of himself with a couple AKs. You never have
8: enough AKs. You never have enough.
1: That's his a uh, assassin, this Pat, Patsy assassin picture that they're going to use on on the on CNN. I, I haven't uh, lost my
5: cool and went on a shooting rampage yet. So.
1: <laughs> well, you don't have to. You're going to be framed. That's my point. <laughs> I, know, I know. It's kind of like the Lee Harvey Oswald with the right. Communist Manifesto and the with the copy of Pravda and uh, the the rifle. Or they'll just use my picture for some
5: random guy who decides right. yeah. to be a terrorist. You're
8: like, that's I, me, dude. <laughs> you see this person? <laughs>
1: I want to ask you about the What's going on with the refugee situation now Because we've kind of had a little bit of a lull I guess over the winter And you've got a situation now Where of course Greece is part of the European Union and yeah. there's a lot of the refugees that have come over from Turkey into Greece, yeah. and you have these Balkan states like Macedonia uh, and a few others that are actually not part of the European Union at all. Yeah. So, and they have actually closed their borders to these refugees. Yeah. So what's going on there with that? What are you hearing?
8: Well i can inform you about that a lot because a lot's been going down you're speaking about the balkan route and which is basically the way yep. from greece to germany or austria or any other state in that region and even the ones in the eu have already closed the borders like months ago like when you had your last show they closed yeah. it before that even and uh the thing that's going on now is i think hungary
1: did didn't they
8: yeah, Austria, yeah. Hungary, all of those, yep. they just closed them up. And they said, if we're taking some, we're only taking a few. And if we're taking some, the only Christians we're having, no Muslims. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that's going on now, they've now had um, the relocation treaty has been signed, which means every <sighs> refugee that is in Greece. that arrived there before a certain date is all right. But every refugee that arrived in Greece after a certain date is auto-extradited back to Turkey. Okay. Which means that we're hardly receiving any here because even though Germany, the the Germans, they want them, obviously. and Like, we've got the politicians over here saying, let's just fly them in directly from Turkey or Greece because they can't get over the land borders anymore. You know what I mean? Right. And so that has died down a lot.
1: This is this, this pledge to uh, that Merkel made to bring yeah. a million refugees into the into Germany.
8: Not not a million. No no no. Not a million. We're, we're going to take about uh, how much are we taking? Eighteen thousand this year. That's okay. All we're going to take this year, and I think they're going to spread about eighty thousand. Uh, you know, onto all states of the EU that will have some. Okay. And the most of them won't. So it's like the six states get like the 80,000 and the rest, as just say, Nope.
1: So they're going to send people back to Turkey. So what's yeah. going on in Turkey now with oh. all this, all this pressure,
8: <laughs> the Pandora's box has been opened. My friends, honestly, it really has. Yeah. Um, the state of, of the union, let's say, between Germany and the Turks is at an all-time low. And it's not even because of the refugee uh, crisis, right? It's about Erdogan. He is the problem. Yeah. Because he is like a dictator, but he clothes himself in like a sheep's clothing. You know what I mean? He's like the wolf in sheep's clothing. Sure. And, and um, the thing that's going on now, the actual... I'm, right, the the people from Germany in Turkey, right, were ordered in to see Erdogan. The diplomats from Germany were ordered in. They had to go the right way because a German show on state-like TV made an Erdogan song. And by this, he was so infringed upon, he says, that Uh he he had to order them in, and he ordered them and to remove it off the internet. Wow. Lesson 101 Internet, Mr. Erdogan. Anything that is on the Internet, you cannot remove, especially if it's about a song about a dictator, and the dictator demands it removed. It will spread, (laughs) and it has spread like wildfire. Honestly, like wildfire.
1: Well, you know, the way he's thinking there is that, you know, Turkey has an incredible amount of censorship of their Internet. Exactly. Exactly. So they think they can just—he thinks that he can just dictate to another nation of, of, well, of their can. internet. That's crazy.
8: He can. You know why he can? Because Erdogan has got the red button, and on that red button is written in big black bold letters: refugees. Well, he's he he's going to let them all go. And if and if you, he's got Europe, honestly, I'm going to say this, and I do not normally swear, but he's got Europe. Via the reproductive organs, the cojones. <laughs> <laughs> they are literally in his hands, and he's gripping. Because either we pay him billions and billions of euros to support the refugees, even though they're just going to live in tents somewhere, and the, the most of the money is he'll take anyway, you know, because he's like an idiot. <laughs> Yeah. and uh if he, if he launches the refugees into Europe, it will fall, and you imagine a million like the refugees into Greece, and the thing is, the refugees aren't even the biggest problem the Greeks are facing because soon the Greeks need more money yeah, yeah, the Greeks are still bankrupt
1: yeah, Greece is still in a pretty precarious uh, situation itself they, yeah, they exactly. there's, there's no way that they can po- that they can possibly take care of any of those people.
8: No, exactly. They cannot. They're going down. How many have they got? I think it was like the 30,000 mark. They're already going into complete uh, disarray. They were begging in the EU for um, for tents, money, food, and for all the refugees because they can't deal. Right.
1: Right. It's an untenable situation. It's not.
8: Exactly. And the the box has been opened and been made worse three days ago because – well, it's been in all news about Erdogan complaining about the Germans and the free speech and the song and it's gone on the internet and got millions of views already, of course, you know, because there she just got the gasoline right into the fire. Yeah. And um then a different like uh, a comedian from Germany, he made a he made of a bit of a, a lyric and to support Erdogan and he was like in his show saying, right? we're allowed to make jokes on German TV and we can say this and that, and that's all good, right? I'm now going to show you what you are not allowed to do on German TV, right? Yeah. And then he got out, um, like a piece of paper and he started reading. After he started reading, Erdogan <laughs> recalled the ambassador to, to, to Germany, back to Turkey. Jeez. Honestly, the honestly, it's German state like the TV. My tax money goes straight into making that. So he sure. then he then thought, oh, the Germans think that, which isn't actually that wrong. If you listen to what he wrote, it's amazing. I te- it's absolutely amazing. Jeez. It, I tell you, it starts it. It just takes half a minute. It starts this. he's dumb as a sack, he's a coward, and he's uptight. Is Erdogan the president? Um, I'm sorry. His dick smells like kebab. <laughs> <laughs> he said that on German state uh, TV. Even a pig fart will t- uh, will smell better. <laughs> it goes further. A man who hits little children. And who, while doing this, has um, uh, a mask on his face. It's better in German, obviously. Sure. And um, the thing he loves most is to Uh (laughs) (laughs) F-goats. And he loves to um, suppress minorities. The Kurds Kurds he uh, kicks, the Christians he hits. Uh Uh-huh. And all the while, he's got... He's got child porn on a dime. (laughs) 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 And it goes further. And even in the evening, instead of going to sleep, Erdogan prefers an infillation with a (laughs) hundred (laughs) sheep. Erdogan is completely in full, a president with a small dick.
1: (laughs) I would. I couldn't see how he would be uh, upset about that. You know what I mean? I, I don't. I
7: don't. I don't. I don't get it. I, I would. Yeah. I'd be pleased if someone wrote that about me. <laughs> me too.
1: But still, even then, you know, dictating to somebody else that you can't do that, you take that exactly. off your internet. Uh, that's ridiculous, yeah. and that it's gonna. That's gonna make it just spread like wildfire. I, I feel like that
5: should be inducted into the uh, set of German like folklore or folk tales.
8: <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the thing is, though, Erdogan said if. If (laughs) that thing that I just read, if that is not removed immediately off the internet and is blocked on all official channels, every deal is off. Wow! All the refugees will come, and guess what they did? Guess what Germany did? What did they do? Took it down. Removed it. Yes. Oh God. Yeah, and it's been opened. Negotiate with them once on their terms. They will always negotiate with you on their terms.
1: You know, it's almost like mafia tactics, you know, it really is. It really, it is. Is. It it's really like, is.
8: It's like you get at the dinner table and the, the dog's there. You give him a piece of your steak. He will always think he's going to get more steak and he will always, he'll always be there every dinner time. He will be there. We're just waiting for his steak. Right. You I know I, mean?
1: I know exactly what you mean.
8: Uh, yep. I
1: want to ask you too about the German elections, the statewide elections. And oh, yeah. you had uh, texted me about that and about how some of the more right wing parties, there's a right wing party that has become second now. Yeah. You know, tell me about that party and, and what exactly has happened over there with that.
8: Well, the thing is, we had um, uh. state elections in three states a few weeks ago, and the um, AFD surged in all the polls, and they're now in every government in those states. Uh-huh. And the thing is, the major they've got that high of a percentile, right, that the other parties are having uh, problems because they need to form, like, you need to have that and that many seats in the House in order to be able to um, rule, basically, right? Yeah. And then you have the opposition as well. The problem is that, that you need that many, like the parties, like the... The moderate right wings, and then you need the, the socialists, and you need the greens and the liberals, and they all need to form into one cohesive group and to be odd, well, and to get things done and to have enough seats. The thing is that they can't agree on anything. Right. Which means in all of these states, no official, like, um, well, the structure. Has even been formed. They're just in talks at the moment because the AFD has got that high of a percentile, and all the parties said, no matter how high the AFD will go in the polls, we will not form an alliance with them. Which is now backfiring because in one state they can't really form any alliances without the AFD because they have that much uh, support in the uh, you know in the votes.
1: Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah. And the, and the AFD is basically for and traditional values. Have you got, like, a real traditionalist guy over there, like Cruz or who? Uh,
1: is there, are you talking about Trump?
8: No. Well, the thing is- Oh, Trump, Cruz, Cruz,
1: Cruz yeah, Cruz, yeah.
8: Cruz, like, he's like the, the family and the woman behind the stove and, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know what I mean, they're like, basically, we need to make more children- Because the Muslims in our country are making more children than the Christians. And in 30 years, there's going to be more Muslims in Germany than Christians, which means more women need to stay at home and get babies.
7: That sounds like something you'd hear at a Republican debate over here, for sure.
8: Yes, in America, that may be normal. But in Germany, that's heresy. Right. Honestly, if we had burnings at the stake, that is where they would go at the moment.
1: We need to have like uh, uh, that. That sounds uh, that, that sounds like shades of, shades of the Nazis. I think to most people, right?
8: It, it sounds like the shade of the Nazis, but the thing is, right? Right doesn't mean Nazi. Not if you go into the history of the Nazis, and I will not start a history lesson now, and we've yeah. not got the time. You know what I mean? That would take but like
1: fifty episodes, probably.
8: It would. Like the, the Nazis were an actual cult. They had like a, a secret organization that all only wore armor all the time, like the Fool Group and things like that. They were working on mind control, and the Nazis basically were their own religion.
3: Yeah,
8: the, the NSDAP, which is the base of the Nazis, only provided them the springboard they needed and to complete like the power to get the Fuhrer in place. And then it was basically the Nazis. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So it's not – they're not Nazis. Hello, Stephen. Really smart people like doctors, leaders, like um, business owners. Like the upper class right. Right. You know what I mean? The upper class right. The lower class right are basically spread out into the AFD and the third way. And the third way, they're Nazis, right? They are they are Nazis, like. And, sure. the, the, and the MPD are phew, NSDAP, just with a few of the letters removed, and then you have the PD. <laughs> basically, you know what I mean? Sure. And, um, but, but, but the AFD is like, uh, how can you say it? Like a people's party. Yeah. You know, because most of the votes that the AFD got was voters migrating from one and to like, let's say the uh, SPD or whatever, the socialists, over uh, and to the AFD. And yeah, turning the their votes
1: of- over to, the, to that yeah,
8: exactly. party. Exactly, and the largest number of votes that the AFD got was from non-voters that said, you know what, we've had it, we're going to vote, and we're going to vote AFD because things need to change.
1: What's, uh, has any actions, because I know that's been a few weeks, has there been any legislation that that has occurred, or have they been able to, uh, or have they not been able to really make a difference at this point?
8: No, they've not been able to make a difference because there's no... And A what just later been formed yet they've not been able to do it
1: and what states were there? the three states oh god
8: um <laughs> now yeah was it your was it
1: your state, state? was no, your state one of them it, okay no, no, no,
8: it wasn't my state it was um Saxonsen uh oh god, I would have to actually look that up now. I completely forgot. <laughs> it's been three weeks ago, you know, the news flood has been. I was amazing. just
1: wondering if, if if somewhere more in the East or somewhere in the, more in the West, or it was more more, more spread out. Yeah. Because I know the no. East took a long time to kind of catch up because of after the unification, because it had been under communism for so long. I wonder if there was whether there was that divide might still be there somewhat.
8: Uh, they actually the the people in the east are the most right by all uh, yeah. percentiles of the people. They are the most right
1: because they've lived under communism a lot. Of, at least ones that are probably in their forties to sixties. They know yeah. what it was like. Yeah,
8: right. I now have a, uh, the, the votes were in Baden-Württemberg, and rheinland pfalz and Ober- and um, Sachsen-Anhalt. Gotcha. And. Um, Baden-Württemberg is next to Bavaria in the south.
1: Okay, yeah, that's west.
8: Lund, yeah, and falz is right in the middle. The, part of that one was east Germany, and part of it west. And then Sachsen-Anhalt is in complete east. Okay. And the okay. further east you go, the more AFD supporters there are.
1: Okay, that's, that's interesting. That, that that divide is still somewhat there.
8: That divide is still there. West German, the people in West Germany are still having to pay... For a construction in East Germany and so that Wow the East, still and so, still and so that the East is on the same level. You know, roads, trains, infrastructure, businesses, uh. school systems, things like this. It's all if you go over to East Germany, the roads are all new. Brand new bridges, brand new right. everything.
1: Right, because yeah. they had to they had to repair them. Do yeah, they still not, do they still make those yeah. East German cars? Do you see no. any of those still around?
8: No, they don't.
1: The, the, we have them over here. They're called smart cars now. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Stephen, about the European view, yeah, on Mister Donald J. Trump.
8: Mr. Donald J. Trump, what's, he's uh, the
1: President
5: uh, of
8: the
1: United States of America. Uh no, no, no. I, I hope I, not. I, <laughs> <laughs> Luke does. Luke, Luke, Luke hopes he's the.
5: All right, <laughs> my, my boy Trump.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is? I, I mean, I kind of know what you think about it, but like, what's the general attitude towards him over there? Because you have this divide. Yeah. in in yeah, yeah. in Europe now are yeah. more people kind of thinking they're hoping that Trump becomes president of the United States they're hoping that uh Hillary Clinton doesn't get it i mean what what do people think
8: well either people are completely against Trump because they say he's a racist and that's basically argument number 1 or they're saying we need Trump to, we need Trump to kick Germany in the ass okay and the EU in total. Because a guy like Trump, in the state that he would be in, in America with all the might of America behind him and all the connections they have, right, would change the face of the planet immediately. If and for better or for worse, that could be discussed, of course. But people want change. It's like a revolution is in the air over here. It's in the air. You can smell it. Yeah. It's, it, 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 you know, and that's how it is, because some people are saying, you know what, we need Trump. You know why? Because he's going to go into the Middle East and he is going to he's going to smash that place into a park. He's going to make a parking lot. Out of it. He's going he's to gonna make it into a glass parking lot. He's going to park in <laughs> the Middle East. And that's what we need. <laughs> you know, uh, that's what people are saying. Really? But, but and then again, you look at statements from Trump, which like, yeah. Nuclear weapons, yeah, the EU's a big place. If we need to use them, you know. You know, so that's what I then think, because he said that. I saw it on, uh, I saw it on the news. And, um, I'm like thinking, well, Trump, out of my view, he's, he's a, a lesser of all evils. And to be honest, because Clinton, hell no, she's involved in all sorts of devious stuff. Uh, we don't want the, <laughs> we don't want Stalin to rise in, in America so no Bernie please <laughs> <laughs> feel the burn you know what I mean
3: <laughs> and Ted
8: Cruz no we don't no we don't need uh, another crusade you know what I mean so Trump is like I don't think Trump's dumb to be honest I think Trump t- plays dumb sometimes in order to feed the news media so that he gets more traction in the news media only to then destroy them later hyping himself up even more because that isn't what he has been doing
1: well he's also stated too that uh not necessarily pulling out of nato but not being the united states not being as much the defender of nato and i'm sure that's got to concern some people over there
8: i think it's good honestly i think Hmm. it's good nato had to be nato but its complete existence really had to be expanded uh, or disbanded whatever, and the end of this uh, the Cold War because NATO was made during the Cold War to fight an enemy, Russia, because only the combined might of the u s and the EU and all the NATO nations is enough to fight the Russians and I think what we need is the EU to have its own say. You know what I mean? The EU needs to have its own, uh, mili- like the, 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 their own armed, like battalions and stuff like that, because the EU just needs to be stronger, in my opinion.
1: Do you think that the European Union should actually just should cooperate with Russia? Is there more of a view? Do, do people view Russia as an enemy over there?
8: It's it's hard to say. The thing is, if I walk over now. It, over there, and the, the radiators now on nil because it's quite warming. But if, if I switch that on, my warmth is straight out of, out of Russia.
1: Yeah, the gas pipelines. Yeah. The gas
8: pipelines. You know what I mean? The warmth is from Russia. Now, the thing is, the US is a bigger trade partner than Russia. So one might argue that it would be smart to stick and move over there in the US. But the other thing is, we don't have a land border, the EU, with America. We do with Russia.
1: Right, exactly. Because you've got the Baltic states that are right next to Russia. The thing
8: is, with Russia, you can never forget the Russians. They have their goals, and those goals are number one. Everything else is, like, you know, at a different level. Never forget that. Never forget the Russians are always out and to do their own thing. Yeah. You know, they didn't help um, Assad now. Because he's a good guy. No, they helped him because the only part they have in, the, the, in, in that area is in Syria, and they want yeah. to hold it.
1: It's pragmatic, it's pragmatic geopolitics. It is. Yeah, absolutely.
8: Is. I mean, I, I have to admit, I love the Russian bombs on, uh, on ISIS. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I, I mean, I think it's, I, I think we need to cooperate. We need to cooperate more with Russia too. Exactly. I think we need to let them have their, we need to let them have their sphere of influence and just yep. leave them alone. Yep. Uh, well, Stephen, we are running out of time here, uh, because we're going to have yep, to get probably. the other the, the guest on, but, uh, Luke wanted to ask you a question. Do you yep. listen to Liebach?
8: To what?
5: Uh, li- <laughs> <laughs> Leibach, L A L A I B A C H.
8: Let me just have a look at my playlist.
1: It's some. Cr- it's it's like some crappy operatic uh, Slovenian metal band. It's,
5: that it's, he not, it's not metal. It's uh, a. <laughs> it's like
1: industrial. Uh, industrial
5: <laughs> operatic. <laughs>
8: Wait, I'm having a look. I'm, I'm having a look, and I'll let you know if it's my thing. Wait, a second. <laughs>
5: <laughs> All right. Should, should we tell him? Should we tell um, him to listen to the old stuff or the new stuff?
1: <laughs> uh, you, I, you
8: should tell him. I don't know. Um, You're the I expert right now. I don't think that's quite my style, to be
1: honest. <laughs> you, you gotta listen to Romstein, though. I mean, come on. Let's st- oh, yeah, of course, Romstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The host.
5: <laughs>
1: Ooh, <host. laughs> Basically. We're all living in America. Well, hey, one more question for America. you, though. <laughs> one more question, though. With all this that's going on, does it make you want to move back to Australia?
8: Uh, not really. It's a great time to be alive. I mean, we're right in the... We're in the middle of the of change. We're in the seed of the flower that's about to expand in the world. And that's here in Europe. For better or worse, it's a great place to be right now. It may sound kind of, you know, oh, you've got all the, the bombs going off over there, but it's still a good place to be because at the moment, everything is here. Everything's happening here. The news is here. You yeah. know what I mean? And the, the things are changing. Yeah. rapidly we cannot imagine the change that is about to come in my opinion
1: you are right about that sir and on that note guys we're going to go to the main guest which is uh, peter robbins and we're going to talk about the uh, life and tom's of dr wilhelm reich and maybe a little bit about roswell too steven thank you for for being with us and stay on the line for us we're going to close out we were right yeah. back on Normal, guys
3: Buckle up for adventure. Strap on your thinking gear and prepare yourself to be inspired. The 4th Annual Paradigm Symposium is coming again to Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 12th through the 15th. An eclectic cast of presenters, including Scott Walter from History Channel's America Unearthed, Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International, historian and ufologist Rich Dolan, conspiracy cryptozoology and UFO writer Nick Redfern, and keynote hermeticist Lon Milo Duquette, as well as several other researchers and pundits in the fields of the academic the Weird and the Unknown, with topics that range from archaeology and hidden history to alternative science, ancient aliens, paleo contact, and world mysteries. Tickets are now on sale at the website. To see all the details for this amazing event and symposium, and to get your tickets now, go to ParadigmSymposium.com. Come to learn, leave inspired. <laughs> All
1: right, guys, we are back and want to thank Mr. Stephen Ogden for coming on the show, giving us the update on the situation in Europe and what's going on over there. And on the line via Skype, we have someone that we had on back in September. And we were talking about the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident and his book, Left at Eastgate, that he co authored with uh, Larry Warren. And that was Mr. Peter Robbins. And tonight we're going to talk to Mr. Robbins about another German named Wilhelm Reich and who he was and kind of the strange stuff that surrounded him. Peter, welcome back to Normal. It's great to have you.
4: Thanks, Adam. I'm happy to be back.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, this is actually something that, Luke, you're actually kind of interested in this subject about Wilhelm Reich. Yes, I am.
5: I'm, I'm stoked. Uh after this show, we're gonna to have to go get all of our orgone gear and get our orgone hats on and the generator and everything else.
1: Well, uh, like I said, Peter, you were kind of like a, like an expert on on Reich on on his on his material and uh, and his technology.
4: Well, I I um, I'm uncomfortable with the term expert, but um, I have a long involvement with his work. I was actually introduced to um, Dr. Reich's writing. When I was still a teenager um, by a college roommate, and um, I realized I was reading something wholly unlike anything else I had ever read in science or philosophy or uh, social observation of the way people behave, and continued to read his work um, on and off for about 10 years. Um, At that point, I became very interested in the subject of UFOs and the fact that Um, His observations of and conclusions regarding this phenomena uh, were used against him to help destroy his scientific reputation in the 1950s. Up until that point, I had given very little thought, really no thought to his UFO-related writing because it just didn't interest me. And what that led to for me was learning that his former first assistant, Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker, uh, for the last 11 years of Reich's life. Although he was uh, in his 70s, certainly at that time, um, he was alive and well and still practicing uh, in the highly specific technique that Dr. Reich developed. And I made it my business to um, meet him and went into therapy with him, which I, I followed up for almost seven years. And in that time, I, I was very fortunate to meet quite a number of people that had worked with Reich, that had studied with him, that had been patients or students of his, his biographer, editor, et cetera, and um, have stayed very involved in my study of his extraordinary work um really since then with whatever else I've been doing at any given time.
1: Well, let's get into who Reich was, you know, mm-hmm. w- when he was born, kind of the general time period yeah. that he lived, what some of his ideas were. And also, uh, I know that he was a contemporary of men like F- Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, who we hear a lot about, uh, especially with the UFO field, about the, ar- the idea of the archetype. We yeah. talked about the- a lot about that on this show. You know, what were some of his ideas and how did they either were similar or d- differ from those from those men? Yeah. Um, to start
4: with, um, Wilhelm Reich was born in the old Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1897. He was privately educated on his family's estate along with his brother. And growing up in a, a rural setting like that, he observed uh, from the time he could remember natural functioning going on around him, the lives of animals, insects, Plants, nature, whatever. Um, it was a fairly sheltered life. Unfortunately, when he was a teenager, um, his mother um, had an affair. She was a very sensitive lady, a piano teacher. His father was quite a, a hard nosed bureaucrat. And um, his father's confronting his mother caused her to take her own life. And then the father, out of guilt, literally stood in a rainstorm until he got pneumonia and he died. Wow. So this is a man who knew something about human suffering from a young age. In 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire exploded into World War One, and Reich um, joined the military, was an um, artillery officer, and at the end of the war, returned home to find he had no home. It had been vaporized. And there was also no
1: no Austro-Hungarian Empire, too. That
4: was gone. That's right. That's right. And it, among many other parts of the old world of Europe, vaporized. And he um, was interested in medicine, and he made his way to Vienna, where he uh, studied medicine and became a physician. Um, One of the reasons that he was drawn to Vienna in the early 20s was the work of this – man who was making more and more news in the therapeutic world and the scientific world, Dr. Sigmund Freud, as you mentioned. And after graduating medical school, he became a pupil of Freud's, then went on to become his first assistant for about six years. In the late 1920s, Freud and Reich parted ways, uh, Reich who had practiced um in the psychoanalytic tradition, as instructed by Freud, um, after six years of doing so, presented findings to Freud where he was, what his um, data showed him was that no matter how um, veiled in other possibilities a neuroses or a dysfunction might be, that there was a sexual dissatisfaction, pathology, uh, lack of fulfillment that backed up literally all human neuroses. And Freud, who is certainly famous for connecting up sex with neuroses, felt Mm -hmm. that many, if not most, um, pathologies and dysfunctions and antisocial behaviors were wired into an unsatisfying or uh, incomplete or non-existent sex life. But Vienna in the 1920s was fairly conservative and this – and, you know, he was becoming the great Sigmund Freud. This was not acceptable and they went their own ways. At this point, Reich became involved with the Austrian Communist Party. He still had some hope as many open-minded people did in the 1920s that the so-called Soviet experiment – might actually be beneficial instead of oppressive. Of course, that was not the case. Right. And the Austrian Communist Party, as well as um, uh, the Russians and the German Communist Party, invited him to develop a series of, of clinics that they called sex poll clinics, where – um, workers who were not having a, a satisfying sex life would go, and um, ideally, in restoring that functioning, the communists hoped that they would become, you know, better workers, better um, human cogs in the machine, much to their horror. Um, as in Reich's terminology, a meaningful sexual equilibrium was restored to couples, God forbid um, – they put the happiness of their family, each other, their children, before the happiness, the needs of the party. And so it kind of
1: backfired in the in the what
4: the communists wanted so. to do with it. Yeah. And it, not surprisingly, um, when Reich left Freud, a number of the inner circle began to um, essentially rumor monger and said that he he was uh, mentally. Uh, unstable, and how could they prove that? Well, he had left Freud. That would prove it right there. Um, Several years later, when this thing, um, this problem emerged with the Communist Party, um, they said, you know, that he was crazy because um, he had this whole crazy philosophy. Uh, It turned him into an avowed anti-communist for the rest of his life. He was driven literally from Austria, then from Germany, made his way to Norway, where he continued his work, and basically focused in on cancer <coughs> formation. The fact is, um, to cut myself off for a moment, if you study the arc of all of Reich's scientific work, it seems to go from point to point to point in the world of science, and in fact, it does, because the common functioning principle – about the science that he pioneered, which he called organomy, is that it is the science of how energy functions in the living and non-living realms. Um, In the late 30s, he was invited by the New School uh, uh, for Social Research in New York City to emigrate to America, and he began teaching there in 1940. At this point, he was focusing in on developing his therapy, working with individuals uh, to help build their energetic functioning, um, give them fuller, happier lives, work toward dissolving the chronic muscular contractions, the armoring, which served to block natural feeling and hold neurotic behavior in place, quite literally. Uh, it was about this time that he developed a device that has been as maligned as he was. And I will say that for any listeners who are interested in what I'm saying, probably the overwhelming number of you have read things about Reich, but very few folks that I run into have actually read the things that he wrote. Okay, And although – I think literally every book that he's written, and there are probably about 20 of them now in print, I mean, 20 of them that have been published over the decades, they're literally all out of print, but they're literally all, you can chase them down on the internet, you can find them in used bookstores and on book services like abebooks.com, that's Abe like Abe Lincoln, abebooks.com. The device is called an orgone energy accumulator. It's sometimes um, referred to as an orgone box. Uh, and the principles behind Reich's work are so deceptively simple that most scientific people who have even heard of them reject them as nonsense because, well, we all know Reich was crazy, and why should I spend my time trying to replicate these experiments when I'm sure they're all crap? Uh, okay. In fact, um, the accumulator is built – very simply, of layers of organic and inorganic material. Uh, it can be fiberboard and steel wool. It could be a box the size of a shoebox or um, a room in a building. Um, a standard human accumulator is about the size of an old-fashioned phone booth, has a seat in it, and depending on how many alternating layers of material um, – the, the charge is stronger. And what happens, what Reich observed, was that the organic material, the wood, fiberboard, what have you, would hold energy where the metallic layers would reflect it. And I've used these things on and off for decades. And
1: they work. They work. Uh, so if you what, sit- what happens to you when you get into one of these things? Yeah. Um, what are you supposed to feel well, oh,
4: there's no supposed to. Um, if you're not, you know, a, a tough, phallic, you know, armored kind of guy, and you sit there and you observe your reactions, you pay attention to what is actually happening mm-hmm. to you. It's usually quite dark, uh, depending on how big the openings are. Um, within a few short minutes, you will feel a tingling on your skin. Um a gentle, energetic charge that makes you feel more aware, uh, more connected to yourself. If it's an entirely dark enclosure, you have a, a visual phenomena that is quite amazing. It's something that we see as children that adults talk us out of. There's essentially countless little dots of energy that are just spinning, you know, like in little corkscrews. Um, If you lie on your back on a lovely summer afternoon and you look up at the sky and you really relax and you look at what you're seeing in the sky, at a certain point, you will have a a similar sense. You will be seeing countless little bluish bits of energy that when Again, most of us see this as children, and we are quickly talked out of it by the adults in our life who say, well, you're just seeing things or you think you're seeing that, but energy is visible. If you sit in an accumulator for too long, nothing bad will happen, but you will feel kind of tired, um, zapped, um, sort of sapped of your strength for a few minutes, and you know you may need to lie down, drink a glass of water or something. Um this is the way it is. The technology is deceptively simple, but it works. Well, um, I want to
1: ask you, Peter. How yeah. is because what you're saying kind of reminds me a little bit of like an isolation chamber. And there are there are some uh, people that have had experiences with isolation chambers that would be very similar in a way, or maybe like this idea that you would hallucinate while you're in there, or go into an altered state of consciousness. Well,
4: um, I, I've not for many years, but I have used isolation tanks, um, years ago. And we're talking apples and oranges here. First, there's no hallucinations. There's no, uh, altered states going on in the accumulator. It's a mild energetic charge. If you were to build an accumulator, say the size of, um, a packing box and, um, you, Wanted to experiment with it. Um, you could do seed germination in there, plant seeds, put, you know, a, um, X number of plant seeds in an accumulator for X amount of time. Have a control number off to the side that aren't, uh, being put in the accumulator. And then come, you know, um, the season, plant them and observe for yourself. Which plants grow quicker and seem to be fuller? Um, you can actually attach a piece of empty BX cable to a uh, to the interior of an accumulator, and literally um, put a funnel uh, attached at the end. And I've used those over the years to speed uh, healing of wounds a small burn, um, hold to my throat twice a day for a few minutes if I have a sore throat. You know, we all get to know the rate at which we heal. Um, and for me, since I was in my early 20s, I know this technology works because I have employed it on myself and um, worked with it and trying to replicate number of Reich's experiments over the years, which are not um, terribly challenging. You don't need a degree in science or anything like that. Um, Continuing on, though, about his life, at about this time in uh, mid 1947 or so, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, had their eye on Reich. They figured he had to be some kind of quack. Because his machines didn't plug into anything. He talked a lot about sex. And that made him somebody, you know, especially in in that very conservative time in America, uh, a potential um, problem or uh, negative force in in the culture. The problem for the FDA was that no patient of Reich's or any of the physicians that he trained – to do the therapeutic work that he had originated, had ever complained. And ultimately, um, it was years later in the 50s that um, a technicality, the interstate shipment of a accumulator, what the FDA was able to do was to say you are not allowed to ship from Maine where he was living in the last years of his life to another state, an experimental medical device, well and good. He didn't, but one of his physicians did. Okay. And he took responsibility for that, went to court, lost the case and made some bad legal decisions and ended up in prison. Uh, but I'm a little ahead of myself in that from New York, he did move to Maine and the Wilhelm Reich Museum, um, is in Rangeley, Maine. It is his old estate there. It is very much worth visiting. Um, they have different lecture programs the building itself was designed by him and i have to say i've been there repeatedly over the years it is one of the most um well integrated structures i've ever been in from the living area to the laboratory to the observatory to um he had a painting studio uh on top of it it's it's such a functional building and that is where he carried out his later work and also in the 1950s where he developed his last major uh breakthrough piece of technology, um, which he is also maligned for because people don't study the material. So um they will say, well, he thought he could change the weather and he thought he saw UFOs and, you know, that having a good sex life would make you healthy and all this. He was obviously crazy. Well, would that we had more crazy people like Dr. Reich. He um, unfortunately died in prison uh, less than a week before he was scheduled for release in November of 1957. Uh, The manuscript that he had been working on at that time, which um, had a working title of creation, Dr. Baker had told me that he had gone through the manuscript and felt it was the most brilliant thing that Dr. Reich had ever uh, written, I would imagine it 's in some vault in the FBI uh, building in uh, Washington right now, but that manuscript was not in his cell when his body was found
1: interesting and I want to get back to um, his death and some of the mysterious circumstances surrounding that because the first that i 'd ever heard about uh, him was in a book about conspiracies and that was mm-hmm. one of the things that was mentioned. I want to get back to that. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's I want to talk about this energy that he found. He called it orgone. Orgone, yes, correct. And, and what was the why did he call it that? And and what what did he believe? What did he say that this energy is? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, essentially we live in a sea of energy. Uh the sure. air around us is literally animated. Um, the Hindu word for it would have been the prana. The Victorians called it the ether. Different cultures had different words for it, but Dr. Reich was the first person – well, he was able to calibrate it, observe it, measure it under laboratory conditions and developed a number of specialty – devices um, to establish this in no uncertain scientific terms. The word itself came from um, the word organism, basically. Uh, some say orgasm as well. Yeah. And Reich, he, he was an extraordinary thinker. He was able to see this – focus in on a detail – and articulate it but he also saw the big picture at any given point point. and one of the real epiphanies in my life again going back to when I was in my early 20s was reading about a formula that he put forward that governed everything from the splitting of an amoeba into two separate you know um, entities to orgasm to the way a storm forms in the atmosphere, to the way star systems create themselves. And it's extremely simple, for me it's very elegant, it's tension, as in mechanical tension, charge, as in electric charge, uh, discharge, and then relaxation. Uh, for a lot of folks, even if you're you're not a country person, you can remember a time you were out in the country and there was a storm coming and the air got very still, almost to the point of, you know, you being really preoccupied with it. Uh, leaves tend to turn over. Then all holy hell breaks loose and there's thunder and lightning and rain. Right. When it's done, there's sort of a sweetness to the atmosphere and, you know, things are uh, renewed, so to say. Um, one of the great observations Reich had is that human beings, number one, create more energy. They have more energy than they're often really able to discharge in work, play, whatever they're doing. And we all come into this world Free of associations, but at the same time, uh, the longer we – well, as we start to grow, we are the victim of certain kinds of information, um, often revolving around human sexuality, guilt, contrition, anxiety, fear, um, disappointment, what have you. And so many folks, if not most folks in the world – at some point without even realizing it resign themselves to a less than dreamlike life whoever is really happy who has a really ecstatic sex life and you know you you resign yourself and um, you know start watching a lot more television um but in in all seriousness this is really the tragedy of humanity if um and i'll put it this way does anybody in your audience think or do you guys think that If the world's great religions, and I refer here to Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, if they didn't come with a basket full of sexual guilt, and I will have to single out fundamentalist Islam here, can you imagine how different the world would be if these frightened, ignorant, violent people who are the focus of much of our thinking on any given day... um. Had grown up with meaningful, happy sex lives. It ain't. It's not the way it is. Well, and, Peter,
1: when you think about when you think about the Puritans, I exactly. mean, you can think, think about, about that, that and too. That's and just how misery and guilt yeah, and how weird we are about steps. sex, and, and just no. in this country alone, yes. how conflicted right. we are about it.
4: Yeah. Um, <laughs> this again, is something most folks don't talk about. And we look for political so, uh, solutions or understandings of the ongoing crisis that is just getting greater right now in the Middle East and infecting the rest of the world bit by bit. But human sexuality is a huge amount to do with it. Um, if, indeed, um world leaders would maybe pay some attention to Reich's work. That would mean a lot of homework. Their willingness to um, be the subject of ridicule themselves for reading stuff by Wilhelm Reich. Um, they would learn that, number one, the technology he developed in the 50s to affect the weather could literally be shrinking deserts all over the world. The Cloudbuster is Again, a deceptively simple device made up of long pipes in rows, um, fairly good size, with empty industrial BX cable coming off the back, grounding those pipes in deep water, running water, a well, a pond. The water acts as an attractor. And draws down energy from the atmosphere, creating movement in the atmosphere. And if you are in a stagnant zone where um, you've got a drought and the air is simply not moving, using this technology responsibly, carefully, you, could, you can draw in over a period of time – depending on what the largest body of water nearby is. And his initial field experiments were in Maine. So he drew from an easterly direction, the direction of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, the relative humidity index was rising every single day. And in their definitive field tests, uh, the following year, in 1954, Outside of, um, Tucson, Arizona. And they chose that area because it had not rained there in years because it was one of the driest areas in the United States historically. Um, several days before it actually rained after <clears throat> a drawing operation from the West, obviously, uh, pulling in moist air from the Pacific area, they had leased a 10 acre site outside of Tucson and there they are, you know, with their cloud busters set up in a sandy area, and several days before it really started to rain, the humidity in the air had become so high that grass seeds, prairie grass seeds dormant in the sand for decades sprung to life, and the grass was growing right in the area of an acre or two where the cloudbusters were working some time before it actually started to rain. This technology could change the world, but I think part of the problem is it's ignored because it's right. And sure. God forbid if it's true and it works, then we might feel compelled to look at some of the ickier stuff like our miserable sex lives and the way society is and, um, Uh, the oppressive nature of uh, the social structures that we've created. Um, Even the titles of Reich's books alone are intimidating, I think, to uh, some folks that would much rather not deal with this stuff. The first book that I read of his, and I'm glad I read it first because it was his first major book, was character analysis, which really goes into tremendous depth in why we function the way we do. Um, the Invasion of Compulsory Sex Morality, how is that for a powerful title, <laughs> deals with just that and its impact on Western society, the function of the orgasm. The Mass Psychology of Fascism. Uh, These were books that marked him in the early 1930s in Europe. Um, Yeah, I'm very interested in that book in particular. Well, um, People in Trouble was a book that he wrote in the early 30s when he was developing his methodology coming out of working with Freud. And one of the things he observed was at that time – Austria, Germany um, the Weimar Republic was close to falling at that point. There was a certain amount of social chaos. People wanted bread, they wanted jobs Um, the depression was at its height and one afternoon he observed from his office window looking down into the street a um, demonstration of workers who were out of work um, for bread and jobs and the Viennese police waded in, and they started beating the hell out of these people. Um, this is sadly not an uncommon thing in the world. It happens in many different societies for different reasons. But what his most profound observation was, the police officers inflicting these tremendous beatings on these Absolutely nonviolent individuals was the expressions on their face. They were absolutely passive. It wasn't like they were angry. They were just beating the hell out of these other people because that was their job. Just like they're doing their job, yeah. And he began to look beyond. I What what is going on with a person? In their thoughts, in their mind, in their body, when they're involved like this, but they have a total flat affect. Nothing is registering on their face. That is actually a very dangerous presenting sign in terms of psychological dysfunction. Um, But by the time Hitler had consolidated power in 1933, he knew who Reich was and so did Stalin. Um, Most people... Even knowledgeable people in political science, they will talk about fascism as something that is on the right as a rule or the left as a rule. But in fact, what Reich termed red fascism and black fascism, red fascism being like Stalinism and black fascism being um, best exemplified by uh, the Nazis, that they had very different – Appearances—they had very different styles and presenting signs. The uh, red fascists were affected a look, you know, like the Mao suits. Um, they dressed in the clothes of the people, but as they, uh, as Orwell notes in Animal uh, Farm, some animals are more equal than others um, the nazis you could see coming a mile away with their rigid body postures their strutting their incredibly ornate you know uh, uniforms and hierarchy of, of badges and things it was they more apparently identical in the damage that they were inflicting on their societies both of those leaders wanted reich dead and he managed at that moment to literally get out of uh, Austria and Germany and make his way to Scandinavia. I, I think he would have uh, not survived uh, had he not gotten out when he did.
1: Sure. Yeah, abs- absolutely. The the, the Orgone uh, – so but the, the cloud-buster, cloudbuster used Orgone, essentially. Well, um, yeah. And I, I would simply substitute the word energy.
4: Sure. Um, again, um, here's the principle – And I'll make it as um, personal as I can. When I was a kid and me or my sisters or my cousins were visiting uh, my Russian grandmother, my nana, um, if we'd have like a a pimple or a boil or something, her folk remedy for it was to take a potato and cut it in half. And she'd give you half the potato and you'd hold it to, you know, um, that area and it would feel cooler. And, you know, the pain, not that it was painful, but it would reduce. I now am aware, though, that it would also speed up the process of that, you know, uh, small infection that we all get as adolescents and beyond sometimes. Um, it would speed up the, the crisis and then the healing. When I was in the Boy Scouts, and this is standard, um, you know, Boy Scout lore, If you are stung by a bee or another insect while out in the woods, find some water, um, mix it with dirt, make some mud, and pack that mud onto the wound. Once again, um, your um, experience, your direct experience will be that the pain will lessen and that the, um, you, you know, you won't think about it as much. And in reality, the energy, the living energy in that mud, the living energy in that potato, is quite literally drawing the toxins to the surface. And important distinction here, and the way that we think about electricity and more powerful fields and and lesser fields um, in the Edisonian, if you will, understanding of electricity. Um, Weaker fields are drawn to the more powerful fields. That's the way it is in mechanical electricity. In studying the way energy functions as observed by and, and, and calibrated and proven by Reich, weaker energy fields attract stronger energy fields. If, if it was a mechanical law that, you know, weak flowed to strong, then, um, uh, the mud energy, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> or the potatoes energy would, um, be attracted to the human when in fact it's just the opposite. And this is, you know, I use the word drawing in a special way here. And I, I know you all understand, but that there is this drawing of weaker, um, to, of stronger to weaker. So what we have here in the Cloudbuster, again, you've got this simple apparatus of metallic tubes grounded by industrial cable into water, which is an attractor and creates movement in the atmosphere. If you have a trailer mounted, uh, Cloudbuster of, say, eight pipes over eight pipes or something, and the ability, as you would in a properly constructed apparatus, to raise and lower it, you might begin almost horizontally in the direction of the major water source and over the next days, if necessary, weeks, elevating it ever so slightly every day. And at its zenith, after X amount of time, having created a much higher uh, humidity index in the air, um, and, you know, um, again, if you think about it, if you could actually set up these devices, um, in areas that were incredibly arid and deserts grow every year, they don't shrink. Um, and for anybody that's interested in looking at the real scientific findings on this for yourself, I highly encourage you to go to um, the work of dr. james demeo, d e capital m e o. Jim probably has done more cloud busting than certainly anybody that I know, possibly anybody in history, certainly has had more time to do it than Dr. Reich did. And he has actually broken droughts around the world, in some cases under contract to actual governments. Interesting. Uh, the Catch 22 there has been um that even though it works they are not interested in broadcasting it so there is non-disclosure agreements involved. Um Dr. Demeo uh runs the Orgone biophysical Research Laboratory. Just remember O-B-R-L. Uh, you can Google it and uh, go to his website and study findings of cloud busting operations going back decades. Um, I observed, I was invited to observe a demonstration of a cloud buster many years ago. And that's at least 30 years ago. I still have to put it up there as one of the most memorable afternoons of my entire life. Oh. I had studied this, I intellectually accepted it um, a dozen years or so uh, in, but had never actually seen it in action. And over the course of 20 minutes, and this again was a demonstration, not meant to, uh, it was not a, a weather modification operation beyond exhibiting how effective it is and uh, how dramatically fast it can get results in some cases. Um, but I watched as our operator entirely changed the complexion of the sky that afternoon over the course of half an hour, an hour, and um, letting us know beforehand, by the way, what was going to happen and then making it happen. This is real. But it's kind of a bastard area of science and has some real parallels to the extraordinary ridicule factor we find governing a, a lot of the way the public sees the UFO phenomena.
1: Sure. And, and the connection with that. And also you, you, you mentioned this doctor working for governments. Now in Left at East Gate, you mentioned that you saw something at. One of those Air Force bases, uh, I don't know if it was Bentwaters or it was the other one, but you mentioned seeing a structure that reminded you of the uh, Cloudbuster. Not quite, but almost. Um,
4: first, you're, you're talking about an observation made by my co author, Larry Warren, okay. when he was stationed there in 1980. And indeed, he did observe a Cloudbuster. Um, impossibly large it was never meant to be built that big Um, trailer mounted painted you know an olive drab not far from um, one of the runway locations at RAF Bentwaters Uh, when he first told me this and I remember that afternoon well he was actually going through a brochure for the American College of Orgonomy which was um, which is a facility outside of Princeton New Jersey right now but at the time Was uh, doing fundraising and I was helping them with that. He, I had been talking to him on and off about Reich for the six or seven months that we had been uh, working together at that point. And he came upon a picture of a Cloudbuster and this fundraising brochure. And he said, there was one of those by the base flight line. And I called him on it. I said, no way, no way. Knowing, knowing that Reich, um, who loved the United States um, in a way, Ironically, that many of us who are born here do not appreciate uh, when you are escaping from Hitler or Stalin or crazy stuff going on in the world today, and a country like America takes you in, you are thankful, uh, or at least should be. And he had sent schematics uh, of cloudbusters to the United States Air Force, to the White House. Um, He wanted... The government to have this technology, unfortunately, it seems that when they finally decided to use it, it was what I can only interpret as in a weaponized form. And when Larry Warren and I first visited uh, the UK to begin our work on Left at East Gate, and I, I should say I'll be going back to the UK in June to talk about Rendlesham again, probably for the twenty-fifth time over. Um, it has become something of a second home, and I am still obsessed. I probably always will be with the events that took place in Suffolk in December of nineteen eighty. But we arrived there in February of eighty-eight. In October of eighty-seven, five months earlier, there had been a quote-unquote freak storm of such unprecedented destructive destructive uh, uh, in you
1: know <laughs> destructive let, let power put, let, i guess yeah
4: yeah let me put it this way within three hours right in that area in suffolk one approximately 1. 1.3 million mature evergreens were taken down now if you research this on your own you'll see it sometimes referred to as a hurricane. I grew up in a hurricane area on Long Island, New York. I remember them hitting late August, early September like clockwork. They they bring down trees and telephone poles, but they don't flatten forests of more than a million three, trees in three hours. Sure. Also, by definition, hurricanes are moisture-driven. No rain fell. Um, Larry and I interviewed a number of people – over those years, um, for me, the most memorable were with seniors who had seen all, done it all, lived through the Battle of Britain, many other things. And the most common quote that sticks in my mind was it wasn't natural. It wasn't predicted. It came out of nowhere. It dissipated up into Wales. But the damage that it did was phenomenal. And... Um, It caused me great anxiety. Uh, I, I didn't know if we should even inject Reich and cloud busting into an already very challenging story. And with Larry's agreement, I decided that we shouldn't unless we could find other witnesses who were uncontestable and also remembered that apparatus by the runway. And in fact... I guess it was three years later we did two Army sergeants, um I'm sorry, Air Force sergeants retired, who had served at Bentwaters and Woodbridge a year and two years after Larry, and who both remembered it very well. It's uh laid out in Left at East Gate um and uh, gone into even more detail in the revised edition from two thousand five. But That's the one I've read, yeah. That the um that the military did do this and i after really weighing this for quite a long time i i, I sent a, a very confidential communication to dr de who knew more about cloud busting than anyone that i knew and he did something very interesting he waited until the book was published to make this information public knowing that if he Told me first or made it public first, there might be um, some people would always wonder or accuse or whatever. But he had documented similar freak storms, destroying incredible swaths of forest um, in the 70s. One in a, in a forest in very close proximity to an American air base in what was we then called West Germany and another, as I recall, in Scandinavia. This is not – I I couldn't prove this in a court of law, but the supporting evidence is very strong, uh, which is very disturbing.
1: So even though this guy was ridiculed and supposedly discredited and – brought to the court by the fda in the 50s you have the potential that the air at least the air force is using his technology at least as late as the 1980s oh yes yes um the thing about ergonomy is
4: that it offers tremendous groundbreaking applications and fields as diverse as Biology, psychology, uh, meteorology, weather studies, UFO studies, child raising. Um, again, it deals with energy and how it functions. And if more, if this was something that was socially acceptable, that was studied and practiced alongside of other areas of science, we would all be the better for it. We would all be the better off for it. Unfortunately, that is not the way it is. Um, in a in a positive way, there are groups all over the world that study this, take it seriously. Um, individuals who see therapists trained in this method. And I should say here that in my best understanding, and I am not a therapist. I am not in any way a medical or mental health practitioner. I'm an investigative writer. Sure. But if... If you want to call yourself a Reichian therapist, that's sort of an abstract term. Your protocols are you call yourself a Reichian therapist and you do what you consider Reichian therapy. What Reich developed was something called – that he termed medical orgone therapy, which is highly specific, which I was involved in for, again, almost seven years of my life, which I know I still appreciate the benefits of. Um, And – I can say without question uh, my ability to function in this world often in high stress situations, often with a fair amount of pressure in the work that I do, um, I don't know if I would be able to do it or do it as well as I do it had I not had this background, this extraordinary gift that I gave myself. And... um the ability to function um, and get my job done no matter what's going on around me.
1: Let me bring uh, Rob and Luke in here real sure. quick because Luke's looked into some of this stuff. I want to get you guys' thoughts on some of this. Take it away,
3: sure. Rob.
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I was reading through, Adam sent me um, a copy of the uh, with, just paper, one of the papers, papers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I've I've heard, uh, you know, I've heard Wilhelm Reich's name tossed around a lot, and it's <laughs> mostly just um little bits and pieces here and there, sure. or comparisons to him. But I had um really no idea who he was or his background, and it, yeah. it's fascinating stuff. It is. The one thing I did want to ask earlier, um, I yeah. don't know, one part of the paper I was talking about the experiments and when he went to meet with einstein when they were replicating stuff oh yes he um okay i know it's layers of like organic and inorganic material and it's Mm -hmm. sort of like a capacitor as it builds up energy does it does it have to have something living sitting inside of it to do that
4: no the energy will be there if not being appreciated uh By an organism, so to say. It's there anyway. Um, And yes, the Einstein affair, as it was called, um, is an amazing, amazing footnote to 20th century scientific history that literally no legitimate scientists are aware of or very interested in because they don't know about it. Reich had developed a very elegant experiment to establish that if you had an orgone accumulator, let's say a six-fold accumulator, um, you know, let's say the size of a packing carton, and then you built a box that was the exact same size and thickness, but of just organic material. And if there is nothing to Reich's idea or his notion that – um you know, this energy has certain measurable aspects, then one would imagine that the temperature in each one of these boxes would be exactly the same if they were in, you know, the same area. And in fact, the temperature was always higher in the accumulator than it was in the control box. The experiment was, the abbreviation is TO minus T. And he wrote to Einstein, I think about 1940, and told him that he had established these results. Um, Einstein, who was at Princeton, and it's very important to have a historic context to this. It's 1940. The war is already raging in Europe. We have not been involved yet. Einstein is also an emigre from Europe. And Einstein was fascinated, wrote to him, they exchanged letters. Reich um, offered to bring all of the scientific apparatus, including a a special kind of vacuum tube that he had developed where you could observe This beautiful blue color that the energy put out in a a control room, uh, a dark room, um, with all the apparatus for Einstein to be able to replicate the experiment for himself. They spent what must have been a very interesting day in Princeton. Uh, Einstein wrote him after that that he not only had replicated the results, but he had done it several times and that it would be a bomb. To physics because it violated basic laws that we understood up until that time about physics. The blow came within a week or so when what we understand is one of Einstein's laboratory assistants, or somebody who was acting as one, um, said, Oh, this can be explained um, by, and he gave him what really turns out to be a nonsensical answer and much to Reich's disappointment um, and frustration, Einstein accepted the answer. And after one cursory letter saying you can pick up your equipment, never responded to any of his communications again for several years that followed Einstein's assistants and Reich's assistants wrote back and forth to each other, trying to resolve this. But, um, all of these letters in the original German and in English are available for anybody to read. Uh, I think it runs almost a hundred pages of, of back and forth um, um, correspondence.
6: Right. And what I understand is that there was there was some variable they hadn't taken into account, but well, Wilhelm claims it was that- a
4: false variable. The fact is that this. The way to control T O minus T, you could literally bury these boxes in the soil.
6: Right. And that that was my point, is he tried to get Einstein to replicate it by doing something like that, and he just refused refused to deal with it. Now,
4: why the reason I brought up why it's important to understand this in a historical context is by the time we had reached this point in their back and forth relationship, I think it's fair to say that Einstein would have already been discreetly approached by highly placed people in the Roosevelt administration to become involved in the Manhattan Project. And at that point, um, his security clearances, the fact that his secretary was a real problem for the FBI. She had come over with him, I believe um, in the twenties. Um, she very likely was a Soviet agent and you you know, you couldn't get another Einstein. So it's also questionable whether or not Reich even received the last letter, that there may have been some seeds of dissension being sown there. It's, it, it's a layering of this story that makes it darker, more fascinating, more profound. But from that point on, um, there was, you know, Einstein – was not openly communicating uh, with many people outside of, you know, close friends and people he's working on the
1: Manhattan project with. Sure. Uh, Peter, I want let's talk talk about uh, Reich's beliefs on UFOs. Mm -hmm. What was he interested in with them? Uh, What was, what what was going on there? Well, it's a great question. Um, I'll start by saying that his acceptance
4: of UFOs is a physical reality. Um, which was a direct result of his weather modification work, as I'll get to in a moment, um, was probably dealt the worst professional blow to his reputation. Because by that point in the early mid-50s, the ridicule factor was alive, well, and flourishing as it had been since the summer of 1947. And I can understand why... Any sane, open-minded, decent person hearing about this, if that's the way the information came to them, would doubt, have certain understandable doubts about Dr. Reich's claims. The fact is that his earliest cloud-busting field work in Rangeley, Maine, attracted UFO activity. How do we know it attracted UFO activity as opposed to coincidence? Uh and I should say that when I refer to UFO activity, I am absolutely talking about unknowns in the sky, in the proximity, many approximating the size, um, you know, the shape of, of ovals or circles or disks. When he began cloud busting, UFOs would appear in that part of southern Maine, often right around the property. Uh, you know, in the sky above the property, uh, which is, was his home. And when they were not doing weather modification work, there were no UFOs in the sky. This okay. happened enough times and was observed
1: repeatedly
4: by enough individuals, and not just Reich and his scientific colleagues, but by people in Rangeley and that part of Maine, that you could, at a certain point, draw a parallel. And he wondered, you know, what they were doing there, uh, obviously. Uh, the fact is that he he was a trained – he was as careful an observer of the atmosphere as anybody could be. Um, when you work in nature, basically, um, the smallest things can hold your attention. It was really – I want to get this right for you guys. Um, He had never given any thought to the subject of UFOs before these things happened. And In 1953, um, he had visitors uh, at his um, uh, estate and they told him that they had seen some UFOs in the sky. Um, He had no interest in it really because – it just – you know, it was extra information. But he then became interested as they appeared when he did the weather work. His The first UFO book he read was Major Donald Kehoe's still very fine book, Flying sausages from Outer Space, which was published in um, I think 52 or 53. Uh, Major Kehoe, for any of your listeners who are not familiar – was probably the first major, rational, best-selling UFO author in the world. He is a marine, decorated World War II fighter pilot, and he was kind of the godfather of modern scientific UFO research. Right. Uh, he liked uh, – he, he thought Kehoe had a very good bead on um, – what he was discussing, and I'm just pulling up a quote here. At the time, Reich wrote, I had not studied anything on the subject. I knew practically nothing about it, but my mind, used to expecting surprises in natural research, was open to anything that seemed real. And he went on to read um E.J. Ruppelt's report on UFOs. Captain Rupelt, for your listeners that are knowledgeable on the subject, was the director of Project Blue Book for several years. And um, Reich here, in reference to Rupelt's book, writes, The Rupelt report on UFOs clearly reveals the helplessness of mechanistic method in coming to grips with the problems posed by the spacemen. The cosmic orgone energy which these living beings are using in their technology is beyond the grasp of mechanistic science since cosmic laws of functioning are not mechanical but what I term functional. The helplessness of mechanical thinking appears in the tragic shortcoming of our fastest fighter jets to make and hold contact with UFOs. Being unavoidably outdistance is not a flattering situation for military pride." The conclusion seems correct. Mechanistic methods of locomotion must be counted out in coping with the spaceship problem. Now, that is a pretty bold statement. It's also damned insightful. No matter what we know, think we know, or don't know about UFO phenomena, these things don't run on coal or gasoline or probably nuclear energy. They have harnessed the great sea of energy in which we live. And I think his observations around that are absolutely spot on. Now, this is a very sophisticated man and he knew that people, the scientific community, the public in general was going to come down on him if he published his findings. But at a certain point he felt that it was necessary and wrote a number of smaller pieces. But in fact, His book on the weather work and on these UFO observations, and it is one hell of a book, although I would have to say it's probably not only not a good right book to start with. It's probably the worst book to start with because it is based on almost 40 years of scientific observation, developing the science of energy functioning. And here he is talking about changing the weather, about flying saucers. Sure, sure. Um, the book yeah. is called Contact with Space. And before you start looking for a used copy, I'm sorry to tell you, only 500 copies were printed. You can get a good Xerox of the book for about 50 bucks from the um, Wilhelm Reich Museum bookstore. Um, I remember in the 1970s when I first became interested in this – I was shocked to find out that there – a new copy of the book, there were a few dozen available uh, from the museum bookstore, were either $75 or $100. And I thought, well, that's crazy to spend that much on a book. I only wish I had bought a box of them. Um, As a bibliophile and a book lover and an avid reader, uh, some years ago, I I remember learning that copies were going for over $1,000 and just for the heck of it, a few hours before the show, I went online to see if I could find a copy, and I did for forty three hundred dollars. Wow, a, it is a rare book. Yeah, that's that. That is pretty rare, Peter. Yeah, it is. Yeah. but again, if any of your, if you or any of your listeners are interested, you can get a very good Xerox copy for fifty bucks. If you're a serious student in the subject, it belongs in your library, and um, read it after you have read other things by dr reich well
1: let's talk about his death Mm -hmm. and i know that there was some mistake i mentioned before that that there's some speculation that there might have been some things that were rather uh sinister with his death so what what happened to him yeah well um
4: dr reich again um was found uh deceased in his cell In Allenwood Federal Penitentiary, I think it was Allenwood in Pennsylvania. Um, he was due to be discharged about in about a week, but he was dead. Um, and it's certainly, you don't have to be a conspiracist to think, well, gosh, here's a guy that the government did want dead. Um, he had the awful distinction, and I guess the red badge of courage as well, to be um, the only American author either ever, certainly in the 20th century, I believe ever, to have his work burned in government incinerators from really? um, about – 53 or so until right about the beginning of the Kennedy administration. And this goes back to the FDA's vendetta against him. They had made it very clear that their belief was orgone energy wasn't real. Well, it sounded kind of goofy to start with. And his devices didn't plug into anything. So we all know they couldn't work. And um, what they did was on first editions of his books where the term orgone energy might never even be mentioned in the book. But if there was any note on the flyleaf, you know, or on the back of the jacket talking about a book that did talk about orgone energy, I think five or six tons of his books went into government incinerators and were burned to ash. Uh, This is a very dark moment in the history of our country as far as I'm concerned. It's also the height of the McCarthy era. And perhaps it's a good thing that um, his book, Contact with Space, was not actually published until a few weeks after he died. So what are the circumstances? When anybody who is the target, uh, well, right or wrong, of um, government agents, um, government dislike, government hatred, what have you, um especially in our culture now um it, it's not uncommon in some cases, it's very fair to think that they were taken out. well, to digress for just one moment, I remember on the fortieth anniversary of the um uh, of the Kennedy assassination, President Clinton went on television and he had a few things to say about it, and I I did not respect him then. I don't respect him now in that respect, although uh, on some of the darker days of the Bush administration, I I would have much preferred President Clinton in a second. But (laughs) what he started to talk about I think is normally a very rationalist and understandable thing. Um, When a great person, when an important person, when a significant life is snuffed out – in um, a tragedy or a murder or a crazy accident, um, the people that admired, that respected, that looked up to the individual, um, naturally will look for a greater cause than random accident. You, you want to have something you can really get your teeth into, like, you know, foul play or conspiracy, what have you. And that is something that the human mind does. Uh, what I don't forgive President Clinton for was then saying, and that's the way it was with the Kennedy assassination, one lone gunman, blah, 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 shame on him, shame on him. So I understand that there is great reason why a lot of people, even people that just know a little about Reich, might think that he was murdered. Well, maybe he was. However, um, my studies over the years have told me this. Number one, this was a man whose life was literally, literally interwoven with human freedom of expression, sexual freedom, um, natural functioning, and he goes into court and he is convicted on this small charge. But there is a contempt of court citation, as I recall. Well, again, it comes down to interstate shipping of a, experimental medical device which he took responsibility for but did not do the next thing this great scientist knows is he is in prison he is living surrounded by stone walls and metal bars eating crap in the most uninspired sad brutal atmosphere imaginable reich um, had high blood pressure uh, although he was very trim when he was young, he was very barrel-chested and overweight when he was older. Um, he had a old-fashioned European diet, ate very heavy foods, yeah. certainly would have a drink now and then, um, had a heart condition, and I think it broke his heart. I think it literally broke his heart. I'm not saying that foul play wasn't involved, but I am completely comfortable with the fact that he died, and it happened to be a week before he was scheduled for release. And part of the mythology, the romance, the excitement about Reich to a lot of folks who, sad to say, don't know much about his life or work is, yeah, he was killed by the government. Well, you know, um, do your own homework and come to your own best conclusions. Sure.
1: Yeah. You, you know, what what's interesting to me is that if they thought this guy was such a crackpot, why not just ignore him? Why go to all these links to discredit him, to 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 prosecute him, mm-hmm. and all these other things? If somebody must have thought there must be something to this, and and, it, and again, it could be just like that forbidden technology kind of thing. Because definitely, we hear about that still. Like, Luke, you were telling me the guy that created the the engine that ran on water. Uh, yes, uh, Stan, like just
5: died, disappeared. Uh, Stan Meyer, I, I don't know, that might have been, um, that might have been sensationalism I was reading or whatever, but uh, I, I think it's highly likely. I mean, we, we see time and time again all these stories about how the government gets away with things by you know using backhanded legal way, legal methods and. And, yeah. uh, assassins yeah. and everything else. So.
1: And mentioning the FDA, like, yeah, and you talk about, 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 about the Reich's uh, work on cancer. I mean, that stuff like that oh, yeah. goes on all the time now yeah, yeah, where people right. are coming up with these, these alternative cures to cancer and, uh, they get shut down by groups like the FDA. So they have to, people have to go to Mexico and, and other. Like third world countries to get this treatment. well, when
4: to digress for a moment, when we speak about Mexican cancer clinics, uh, people tend to generalize to my best knowledge, there is really only one method expressed in a um, established ongoing uh, clinic uh, in Mexico, and that is the Gerson. G-E-R-S-O-N, um, cancer therapy developed by uh, a brilliant physician in the 1920s named Dr. Max Gerson, in German, who, um in fact, was murdered. He was poisoned. Um, I don't know if his daughter is still with us, but Dr. Charlotte Gerson Strauss ran that clinic for many years. And um, the Gerson cancer therapy, um I think... If I learned that terrible news about myself and I was going to not follow a a standard uh, regime, um, that is probably the one that I would follow. But yeah, um, whether or not it's hyped up in the internet or the media or just a darling of of conspiracy theorists with not a lot to back it up or – absolutely something you could take into a court of law and and prove like a murder case. Um this is part of the way that our crazy dark world functions. And there's no question in my mind that there were people of tremendous influence who certainly followed Reich's work, who were aware of of what he was doing in certain areas of science at certain times. Uh, and again, in the sociopolitical realm, um, if you read people in trouble, the invasion of compulsory sex morality, the murder of Christ. Um, you will see insights into the human character and often the worst part of it, so much so that it it, it gives away the hand of um, dictators and oppressors to such a degree that it's easy to understand why people like Stalin and Hitler would have wanted him dead, 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 as uh, Robert De Niro said in uh, *The Untouchables*.
1: <laughs> hey, Peter. In the time that we have left, I want to I want to shoot you out my Roswell question. Yeah, and uh, we got about ten minutes or so here. So cool. Uh, the here is my big question about Roswell. You know, I used to really think that there was something that happened there. I, I've, I've changed kind of my mind as to what that probably is, but it seems to me that a lot of the basis of the story now of a crashed flying saucer or extraterrestrial spacecraft, whatever uh, it seems to me now that that a lot of that is based on these memories that came from people that started talking about it 40 years after the fact Uh, A good one, uh, case in point, would be uh, Glenn Dennis, the Undertaker. The one that said that uh, he talked to a woman that supposedly saw the alien bodies at the base. This was a nurse. And supposedly later on, he couldn't remember her name and all these kind of things. And uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of that. Whether some of those memories may be distorted or they may have just been things after the fact uh, to try to c- capitalize on that event? Well, um, let me first in in
4: uh, all fairness give you a, a little bit of background on me relative to Roswell. Like any UFO researcher, for lack of a better term, um, I learned about Roswell when remember this, this story only really became part of the public record in the late 1970s or so when um, Stanton Friedman on a lead found Jesse Marcel senior and family living in Alabama. Jesse was already well in his eighties. So when we speak about people talking about it, you know, 40 years or whatever after um, yes, absolutely. Nobody was that we know was talking about it. If they were, they weren't talking to us. Um, I read what I could. Um, I, I found evidence, uh, that I felt was provocative that could lead me to believe that it might be some experimental device or that something truly anomalous had crashed on the plains of San Augustine, uh, outside of what was a, you well, know, quite a, quite a number of miles outside of what was a small town at the time and now a city of about 50,000 people. I first visited Roswell. Um, oh gosh, uh, about 10 years ago and had the great honor of being asked um, by uh, the office of the mayor if I would work with the city as a liaison with um, Governor Richardson on on UFO related issues and help to organize their big annual conference, which was a part of their huge festival uh, in the first week of July of every year.
1: Well, that's how uh, you know our good friend Guy Malone.
4: Yes, absolutely. In fact, um Guy was instrumental because he had been working for the city and essentially when he left that job, I got it. So, um yeah, Guy um was the fir- Guy was the first person to hire me in Roswell and I was there most recently last year. My point is that over the years I I become friends and good colleagues with a number of people in the work who are Roswell research specialists and whom I have learned I feel a fair amount from, um, there are evidences for me that are extraordinarily important. Uh, General Roger Ramey, who is one of the high ups, who was really instrumental in the first days and the actual cover-up. Um, there was a very famous news photo of him right from that same two or three day period where Jesse Marcel Sr. was forced to pose with the uh, remnants of a mogul weather balloon, yeah. which is certainly the most humiliating moment in his life and and caused him tremendous depression for the rest of his life. The way he was treated after that was unconscionable by Air Force, well, Army Air Corps and then Air Force. But in the one of the Ramey photos – And it was um, one that was taken by a um, newspaper photographer at the time. We know his name. And now, of course, it has a slightly different um, association with it, James Bond Johnson. Uh, It is important for anybody that's about to laugh or raise their eyebrow to know that the James Bond of Ian Fleming fame was not a reality for some years at that time. Right, right, right. Now, the camera that Johnson used, which was um, the standard for news guys at the time, was a big 5 by 5 Graflex. And the resolution on those cameras was and remained sensational. But the technology to enlarge and digitize things like, you know, the letters on a cablegram in somebody's hand in a room in a standard photo did not exist at that time. But I guess about seven or eight years ago, um, they were able, and this is uncontested, to enlarge that cablegram in General Ramey's hand. And I'll tell you what. I, I am a very pragmatic nuts and bolts researcher. Anybody that knows me knows I can be boring as hell on a certain level because I don't have – all of the romantic things that one would like to associate with people in my field. I don't have any deep contacts in the intelligent community. I don't get channeled messages from Martians. <laughs> I, I, I am a plotting researcher. I work like a cop basically or an attorney and try to triangulate and build evidence. But again, when I saw the results of that um, photographic um, uh, treatment, I I knew I was looking at some of the best evidence I have ever seen. You can actually read a good part of that cablegram in his hand. And there is no question that it is not Photoshopped or digitized in an unethical way. You are reading key words, like crash, disk, other very loaded terms that unless you are a complete blithering idiot, you have to say – would result in the deduction of any intelligent person that that cable is reflecting a real crash of a truly anomalous object i would also ask anybody that um would like to get a sense of um, the human area of witnessing to read um gosh which one of the books is it um Is this Tom Carey and Don Schmitt's, um Witness yeah. to Roswell, Witness to Roswell. Yeah, I've read that um, a long time ago, yeah. A, I, I find it one of the most fascinating, infuriating, um, heartbreaking, and, and unique books in the history of UFO studies. It is dozens and dozens and dozens of accounts, mostly from people who are now in their 60s, 70s, older, who were alive at the time, many of them younger people. Whose parents were somehow caught up in this. And the terror that they lived with for decades, with death threats hanging over their heads, made within days to them personally, um, by these specially trained uh military police officers. Um, it's very important when putting forward information like that to make it to establish in no uncertain terms that not a single one of these witnesses wanted to write a book, was paid a penny, wanted to do a talk show, or has done one. They wanted to go on record with what they remembered and what happened to them before they died. Um, Glenn Dennis, uh, who um, I'm sorry to say I never met, um, I, I find his account very believable. And the fact that toward the end of his life, the last few years The actual name of the nurse um, completely was something that he could not remember. Mr. Dennis um, died in his 90s of complications from Alzheimer's disease, so that's not a surprise either. But there are quite a number of deathbed testimonies from individuals involved. And that is a very special kind of evidence. If you take a moment to put yourself in the place of somebody – who is carrying around a secret and, you know, days or hours before you die, you decide that you want your family to know something that you did, something that you were involved in, something that happened. Um, I've met two of these guys, both gone now, both I met in Roswell, uh, real old timers with, you know, straight up stories to tell. Uh, one of them who... Um, came there with his son, um, had the most – well, an extraordinary variation on the story. Namely, he was retired. His son, who is certainly a grown-up man, uh, lived with him. And um, his son one day calls him in. He's watching a documentary on TV about this Roswell crash. And there are one or two people in this documentary that his dad – Remembered who are telling their accounts. And when it was over, the son asked the father about this and he said, you know, I, I'm, I, I was involved. I, I do have a memory. I was not deeply involved, but I had intended to take this to my, um, death with me. I'm, you know, I, I took my national security oath very seriously. I love my country. But if guys are talking about this now, I should also. And they decided to return to Roswell several months later, when we had the uh, the big events there. And a number of us had a chance to meet and speak with him. And you know, this guy had no axe to grind. He was like 89 years old. Right. There was no money to be made. There's no glory to be had. It, you know, people will assign those motivations. Um, especially if they're uncomfortable with the subject. But I do take Roswell seriously. I feel that whatever happened there is still a mystery, <clears throat> was anomalous, was genuine, and that we will probably learn more about it as time passes. But how much more I can't say. We're talking about it's it's gonna be sick it's gonna be 70 years next, next year. year. Yep. 70 years. And um I don't know, you know, how many more Jack in the Boxes may spring out, but it, it American world ufology begins with Roswell, and um, I take it seriously.
1: Is it possible that there could have been some kind of experimental aircraft that we were working on? Anything's and, possible, and that we just maybe the the flying disc, because it had, it had come into the kind of like the popular culture with Kenneth Arnold. And that was the first cover story and that they said, oh, that's that's kind of silly. So this is the weather balloon, uh, the weather balloon hypothesis, because I know that Nick Redford and, and I know that guy, I know that they they have a different they have that take that take on it. And
4: I invited Nick to speak in Roswell at a conference that I was helping to organize, and he presented yeah. uh, a paper from that point of view which I thought took real guts. I mean, you know, you're in the belly of the beast there and uh, people want to hear what they want to hear. Right. Uh, I thought it was a very good paper, but it didn't quite convince me. Also, let's remember that Roswell occurred probably – we don't know when the crash actually happened. We know when the debris field was explored for the first time in early July, but it could have happened – a day, a week, or longer before. We just don't know. But I think the smart money would have, um, my sense is that Roswell occurred within a week of the Kenneth Arnold sightings. Yeah, it and wasn't very long. Yeah, No, it wasn't. Um, also, people have asked, well, why this little hole-in-the-wall place in the middle of nowhere? What would interest these, you know, let's call them other intelligences, for lack of a more descriptive term, there is no question that the subject of UFOs is very much wired into the subject of um, nukes. And we have case after case after case, including the uh, um, Rendlesham Forest case, where – Nuclear ordinance is involved. And going back to even Project Sign, the first classified authentic uh, United States Air Force report that we have uh, discussing how seriously um, the Air Force took UFOs at the time and uh, hypothetically considered that they might well be uh, machines from other places under intelligent control. They theorize about... You know, since 1945, we've been doing something here on Earth that can be observed from way the heck out, which is blowing up nuclear bombs. And um, to paraphrase that extraordinarily uh, prophetic line in Project Sign, in light of our past history, humanity's past history uh, of violence and aggression, they should be concerned. Um, in July of 1947. Let's remember that the Air Force wasn't even – didn't even go into existence for another seven weeks or so. I mean it was still the Army Air Corps. There was only one nuclear strike force in the entire world, the yep. 509th Bomb Wing. And they were stationed at this little field outside of this place called Roswell, New Mexico. Um, I should also say here because I, I – for me – understanding the birth of the whole UFO phenomena within the context of post-war history is really important. Hangar four still stands at the old Roswell army airfield. Um, it's the only major building left and it's a big old classic world war II hangar, except for coat of paint. It is exactly as it probably was back in the day. Now, um, for me, evidence worthy of very serious consideration triangulates on that hangar as the location where the debris and the remains of the occupants were taken and then flown to 8th Army headquarters uh, in Texas. Well, 22 months, I believe, before – no, I I take that back. In August – of 1945, so that's 23 months before the July 1947 events of Roswell, a very highly classified mission uh, began at that hangar where a uh, a, a state-of-the-art bomber left there, um, stopped in California where a device was attached to it and then flew on. And dropped that device on Hiroshima. The Anola Gay began her bombing run from Hangar Four in Roswell, New Mexico.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. Well, Peter, we are out of time, and I think I could I could listen to you talk for another hour. But uh, but uh, Luke's over here; his stomach is growling. So
5: <laughs> I'm hey,
1: we are going to be. We are actually going to have that opportunity uh next That's month in Minneapolis because we're gonna be with you at the Paradise yeah. Symposium and so looking uh, forward to it. Pa- Paradise Symposium Redux <laughs> thank to thanks to Mr. Scotty Roberts, who's a good friend of the show. Oh so bro. uh Peter just where can people uh find your books? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah. Um left at Eastgate
4: and my newest book, Halt in Woodbridge, are available on Amazon.com. Get copies from me when I appear here and there. Uh, for anybody that is in the Northeast or if you've got a whole lot of money want to fly to New Jersey for this weekend, uh, I'll be speaking at the Fringe New Jersey UFO Conference on Wilhelm Reich and um, a the... weather modification. But uh, next month in May – at Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis, I will be speaking on the Rendlesham Forest incident. Otherwise, um, visit me at my brand new website. Not a lot of content, but it's up and running, peterrobinsny.com or
1: on Facebook. That website brought to you by the great Soraya Ascath. So. That's
4: right. Don't forget it, baby. He
1: is my webmaster. All right, Peter, stay on the line. We're going to close this out. It's been an excellent interview, and we will be right back on Conspiranormal.
7: Ring. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. There he goes. Take it away, Adam. That wasn't
1: very hard, was it? Welcome no, back I to Conspiracy Normal, even though we didn't leave. Yeah,
5: that's my job. Oh, oh man. Don't take my job for me.
1: Well, I was gonna I was gonna read something that uh about the shooting in Michigan from last uh month, but uh I think I'm going to leave that for next time because we'll be back here in a few days. But guys, I just want to get Rob, Luke, Zach. I want to get your thoughts on what you just heard. And like you've actually looked into this stuff.
5: Yeah, I you know you didn't want to really ask questions. To, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still starving and I still need a beer and Taco Bell, right? <laughs> yeah, and some Taco tacos, Bell. Taco Bell. Yes, I, I'm looking forward to that, but. No, I'm, I mean I, I have uh, I haven't read any of his actual books, but I have read just like some uh, I guess you call it a biography. I don't know
1: autobiography, whatever. I don't know which which one of those is which. But autobiography is when the person writes it about themselves. Okay. Biography is someone else. Yeah. writes else yeah, about it. Right. Okay,
5: yeah. So I, yeah, I read I read all that, and um, I'm kind of riding the fence on. it. I really don't know what to believe. I, I feel like um, it, uh, some some of the claims are a little bit of a stretch me but but i am open-minded to like try it i'd really like to try the orgone uh box and you know some of his other in the cloud bursting is super interesting i'd I'd actually forgotten all about that before we started talking about it
1: there's weather modification like things in there too you know there's that aspect of that yeah it's really strange
5: um right and also i wanted to ask him about those little orgone pyramids that um you know that you see keep on popping up at new age uh, conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, you talking if, about if like the
1: hat? Like, the, like don't you like wear a hat or something? Well, there a hat that some people yeah, wear. Yeah,
5: yeah. That that's in like the the Museum of Medical Oddities. I think it's in Maine too, uh, which have has a lot of his um, you know example or reproductions of his works in the museum. But that yeah, I'm not talking about the hat. I'm talking about like the actual little orgone pyramids that they sell at the the new age conventions. And they're just like small, they just like sit on a table or yeah, something. Yeah, and and uh, supposedly they're made out of a certain material that conducts the best uh orgone or draws orgone from the earth, you know, the best, the best conductor. Yeah. Um I was I wanted to ask him, you know, if there's any credence to that. Right, credibility, whatever. Um Let's see. Yeah, I had a bunch of questions for him when we just running short on time.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, we're going to get to see him next month. Yeah. So, we, we're going to be be hanging around there for about four days. Um, Rob, what did you think about that interview? Uh,
6: well, first He's of all, so knowledgeable I, I, I love you Peter on. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely believe there's just all kinds of energies that we don't understand and don't know about. And just you know, the... The percentage of the spectrum that we can interact with is so tiny that it's it's easy to believe that this kind of thing is out there and luke you kind of touched on the um repressed technology stuff briefly there earlier too about the like the um engine that runs on water and you know other things that have been kind of hidden and yeah or lost along the wayside and I mean, I, research yeah it's it's definitely possible and i think that there's um Anytime something like you can look at like Tesla's stuff, anything, anytime something is uh, not profitable or it's, it's, um, not easy to corporatize and it, it just kind of falls by the
1: wayside. Mm-hmm. But it seems like somebody, somebody does use it. You know, I couldn't help but think about when he was talking about, uh, the possibility of it being used at those Air Force bases that the Rendlesham Forest case happened at. I can't help but think about, um, you, you know, somebody being discredited or being thrown in jail like Wilhelm Reich was, and then the technology later being used anyway, apparently, by somebody else.
6: Right. Well, not to say that it doesn't have a, a purpose. Just, yeah. it's not easy to, um. you can't really, you can't really sell something that's that easy to create or that's that simplistic. You can't make any money off of it. And if it has any kind of, governmental or military purposes then yeah. that, that's exactly that's what, what I would I expect to, to happen
1: and then because somebody wants to wants to like keep the technology to themselves the military you know, gets most to of the, yeah. the
5: suppressed technology right, right. That-
7: yeah they yeah the, the military definitely has the the best use for that kind of uh technology that you can't just like sell to the public uh i think i think the technology is very interesting uh, like luke said i would also like to uh try some of that stuff out for myself yeah uh, see you know if it really works and see uh, you know just what kind of effect it might have. And the uh, the cloud busting technology that was really interesting too. Weather modification is definitely something that uh, it's a very real uh, thing, and I think some of the some of the different ways people try to do it is is very interesting. I think uh, this is definitely one of the most interesting.
1: Yeah, I used to really like that and weather modification weather warfare that was something i used to kind of be like yeah it's just stupid geoengineering but more but more and more i look at that and i'm like there is something to it you know there, there's definitely a technology behind it I, I don't know about chemtrails i don't know what's going on there well, i don't have know you if that's that, a real you, thing how do you or not, not believe
7: in chemtrails haven't seen all those like facebook pages
1: Oh, yeah, well, you know, Facebook, Facebook always tells me the truth, right? I mean, yeah, just
7: look, look at the memes. Anytime I see a meme
1: that's just, like, boiled down to, like, four or five words, you
7: know. You know
5: like when Whenever you go to cite your references and they're all just Facebook memes.
1: <laughs> that's your work cited page. Where'd you get your information? Facebook,
5: dude. <laughs> meme number 47 off Dank Meme Stash. <laughs>
1: All right, guys, it's great to be. It was great to be back tonight. I hope everybody enjoyed that show. And as we said before, we are going to be at the Paradise Symposium in Minneapolis. That's going to be May 12th through the 15th, which is a Thursday through a Sunday. And Peter Robbins is going to be speaking there, our good friend Micah Hanks. Uh, It's put on by Scotty Roberts and John Ward. Uh, you probably have heard the advertisement that we've played on the show. Um, we're really looking forward to being there. We're going to be, we're going to be there doing interviews, uh, talking to the, to the guests there, uh, the speakers and hopefully going to have what we may have about like 15 hours worth of interviews that are done with this thing. Possibly. <laughs> so, and we're going to have a, a couple of guests that have been on the show, uh, are going to be there with us. So we're looking, we're looking pretty forward to, to taking a nice little road trip. So. Totally. Yeah. Well, next uh, next time, uh, coming up this Sunday, uh, depending on when you're hearing this, this is April 4th, um, we're going to have Brian Godawa back on. And we're going to talk about his new book, um, The First Emperor of China. And this is the, the part book one of his Watchers series, or Chronicles of the Watchers. He had his other books about Chronicles of the Nephilim. So I'm hoping to get into uh a little bit of the history there and some of what he thinks about the watchers and what they were and also a little bit of a discussion about uh why why a lot of christian movies seem to suck so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we will uh we will end it for now guys and uh we got an extra special song coming for you a little operatic uh industrial. <laughs> And uh, we will be back next week on Conspira Normal! Munchy food.
2: Hour. We don't think about the rest And we all get the power We all get the best When everyone gives everything Then everyone, everything will get Life Life is life